unafraid, and unapologetic. Join me, your host, Alyssa Bartha, for deep dive conversations into the world of mysticism and spirituality, talking everything from tarot, astrology, divination, past life regression, energy healing, and other mind-bending and soul-expanding topics. Listen in for interviews with some of the most interesting and unique personalities in the world of spirituality and mysticism as we journey into the esoteric, exploring the universe with eyes wide open. Plus, I'll be bringing you my own mystical musings to help you enrich your life with my favorite tips, tricks, and truths. The Misfit Mystic Podcast. Hello, mystics. So today I'm bringing you a Misfit Mystic Podcast, and I have an extra special guest that I'm excited to introduce you to. She is a registered psychotherapist, spiritual psychotherapist. She is a uh, Reiki master healer and so many more things. Um, and this is uh, Carmen Katan. Welcome, Carmen. Thank you so much, Alyssa, and thank you for everybody who's listening. And, uh, I just feel excited to be here. I'm so glad to have you here. So uh, today we're going to have uh, a very interesting discussion. Um, we kind of uh, tossed some ideas back and forth um, when we first uh, talked about bringing you on the podcast. And um, what we decided we would settle on is not particularly anything, but definitely have some conversations around maternal mental health. So I know, Carmen, in your work as a psychotherapist, you help people uh, shed light on some of the obstacles and challenges that we all face of, of varying sorts. And I know you give uh, a lot of technique and uh, tools to help people to move through those things. But um, I think the reason why I was so excited to talk to you today about maternal mental health particularly is because it's something that I feel has never really been, been given enough um, focus, enough concentration. I absolutely 100% believe in that message because women tend to forget about themselves once they become mothers. Um, oh there's all of these expectations and, you know... Um, you need to be the perfect mom, you need to be a good mom, whatever that looks like. And it really mm -hmm. gets projected, you know, the society standards get projected onto her, and she takes them on. Um, but there's no village. That's so true. I know, um, when I first had my kids, so my kids are older now, they're uh, young adults. And, um, you know, I remember when I first had my kids, I, I was kind of on my own. Um, of course, my husband was there to help whenever he was home and around, and he was a very hands-on dad. Thank God for that, because mm -hmm. um, I may have been tempted to leave them at Walmart, maybe, you know. <laughs> but it's a lot of work being a mom, and, you know, particularly at a time in our uh, collective history where the focus is on how productive you are as a member of society and not really what you're producing but just what are you, how productive you are, you know? And I think our children have become to some extent part of that um, production line mentality. And I think, you know, that strain that, you know, moms feel is very real. And I love what you just said about there not being that, that village, that sense of community and understanding even amongst women. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it is part of the shadow, because if you had to do it alone, think about the hurt and the grief that's going to be inside when, you mm -hmm. know, you see another woman going through the same thing. And some mm -hmm. women are going to want to help. Some women are going to want to say, I don't want anybody feeling the way I did. But others mm -hmm. are just like, well, I did it. 
you so can you yeah 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 i know um i have a very close family member who you know sort of lives in an area where there's not really any support for her and she has two young boys and you know we've had conversations because of course we're thousands of miles apart me being here in canada her being back home in washington and just sort of you know that that sense of um being adrift in many ways Mm -hmm. and not feeling like people really want to connect with you or um i don't know if you see this a lot but that feeling of competition in motherhood like what the fuck is that about you know (laughs) by the way we didn't swear on this show so it's okay (laughs) but that 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 competition I, i you know even i felt that and i'm i'm generally pretty um pretty much in my own lane and i do things my own way regardless of what people say but there was definitely times i felt that sense of like well you know little tim tim is doing better than little you know susie or whatever and and that feeling like you just can't ever meet the mark whatever that mark may be mm-hmm. and the mark will keep getting further and further the more you walk towards it yeah 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 and it, it's it's really challenging though too because kind of that you know as you were saying that sense of kind of isolation and not really feeling like you have people around you to you know, not just support you of, oh, I'll I'll help you with your kids, but even just talk to you as a human being, like, what are your interests? You know, Mm -hmm. what are you thinking about these days? How are you feeling? Have you slept? (laughs) Have you peed alone? (laughs) Yes. And, you know, people feel, I've generally noticed that the women that I tend to work with feel very alone. And the first introduction into motherhood is usually trauma. Mm -hmm. Mm. Right? Talk the about labor that. and the delivery. Mm-hmm. Talk about that a little bit. Oh, my goodness. The things that I have seen in my practice. Um, I actually got my um, EMDR um, certificate, certificate done for trauma reprocessing just to mainly focus on mm-hmm. the labor and birth trauma that um, some mm-hmm. of my clients have experienced because... Um, we've really moved away from trusting the mother's body. We've really moved away from trusting that the body knows how to handle Mm -hmm. this. The body knows how to work with it. And Mm -hmm. what I've noticed is that there is, um, there's lots of interventions that are happening without informed consent. The women are not being talked to. They have no idea what's going on and it's kind of being done to them rather than having that collaboration of okay these are your options this is what you can do it's your choice because it's your body what ends up happening is you are the host you are hosting this baby we want the baby out safely we want you to be safe but we don't care about Mm -hmm. any uh, emotional ramifications after that any traumatic that is completely out the window so then you have this baby you've got you're bleeding you're you know you're stitched up whether it's from a c-section or from your vagina and Mm -hmm. all of that is not talked about because you have a healthy baby and you need to be very grateful that you have a healthy Mm -hmm. baby in your arms that you need to care for Mm -hmm. and completely put yourself away even though you Mm -hmm. are born as a mom too the maiden had died and the mom is being born. Oh my God. I'm so covered in goosebumps right now. Like, like this is like hitting me so hard because I don't know if I ever told you in our discussions uh, over the years that we've known each other, but um, 
when my daughter was born, that, that whole intervention freight train entered my life. Mm-hmm. And I, I went into labor and it was really funny because uh, right before I, I went into labor, about three days, I'd gone in for my checkup and I have nothing against male doctors. I think there's a lot of really fantastic, really caring and sensitive male doctors. And then there's the other kind and I had the other kind. And uh, when I went in for that checkup uh, to see how far along I was, because I was close to my due date, yeah. um, he when he examined me, first of all, he was very rough. Like he actually hurt me. And my husband was in the room because I insisted that he be in the room with me. And the whole time he was making his verbal report while, you know, manhandling me, he was looking at my husband as though I wasn't even in the room, which my husband would testify to. Like, you know, he was looking him dead in the face while I'm sitting there somewhere between stunned, angry, and in tears well, he's talking to me, talking about me, like I'm not even in the room. And that sort of set the pace that only continued to take um, more momentum towards my daughter's birth. And, you know, it, 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 like you said, and this was directly my experience, they don't talk to you. They're talking at you if they're talking to you at all or, or within your vicinity. And it's so depersonalizing and it is so it's already a surreal experience when your body is going, okay, now we're going to have a baby and it starts to kick into its own cycles of change and transition in order to facilitate the birth. You know, you're already along for the ride. It's even worse if you don't feel like you're in a loving space where people actually care about your personal experience. Cause you, as you said, and I love that you should put that shit on a t-shirt as the baby is born. So too is the mother because, mm-hmm. and I don't think that isolated just to your first birth either. I think that happens each successive uh, child you bring into the world, you know, but it, it, it's, as I was, you know, describing, like it was one thing after the next, after the next, after the next for me up into uh, actually having my child mm-hmm. and like the discussions that came after that were were very little, very, very little to do with my survival, my mentality, my emotional body, anything. It was just more like, oh, the baby, the baby, the baby. And it's like, well, hold on here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what about me? And I never thought I would feel what about me? Yeah. You know, I remember yeah. um, being a new mom and mm-hmm. part of my coping strategy was kind of scrolling and finding other moms, other mom accounts mm. on um, Instagram. Oh, because that was something that you know there was a village sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I read something. It's like everybody wants to hold the baby, but who holds yeah. them? Yes. Oh, yeah. When you put it in those terms, it really kind of puts into stark relief just how isolating motherhood can be. Absolutely. And in the developmental stage, infants don't have a sense of self. Infants, mm-hmm. their whole experience is I am you. So if yeah. everybody wants to hold the baby, nobody holds the mom. The mom's not mm-hmm. feeling okay and the baby can feel that. Yeah, yeah. And they don't and- have any sense of, you know, well, I'm mm-hmm. I'm separate from you. No, mommy's okay. Mommy's not okay. I'm not mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, and that sets in a, a, a whole narrative deep within the psyche, I think, that starts to distrust the world around 
us, you know, mm-hmm. and it's interesting because like, I, I, you know, even looking at my own history, because of course I'm an expert on myself. Um, <laughs> if nothing else, I can say that with certainty, you know, I mean, I, I can testify to exactly what you're saying in my, not just my experience as a mother, but my experience as being a child, yeah. you know, because I know my mother, you know, as much as she may or may not agree with some of my statements, I know uh, this much is true that she did not feel very supported. In fact, she, I, I know she didn't feel support at all with my birth um, for numbers of reasons, not least of which because I'm the product of a, a mixed child's mixed relationship. <laughs> so, yeah, very complex. Mm-hmm. And th- those mm-hmm. layers of complexity, you know, when you're in the womb, you feel that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you're born, yeah. you feel it. And as you progress and you grow and you get older, that also manifests itself in different ways. But the key here is to focusing on the first point of contact for this baby, which is the mom. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you then, you know, with, with this understanding and uh, awareness that you have, how do you feel that that is um, sort of playing out in the world around us at this moment? Do you feel like that there's any changes happening in society or in our smaller um, nuclear communities? Like are people becoming more aware of this need or do you feel like this is something that we need to turn the volume up on big time? I think it's starting to catch fire, but we need to get angrier. We need to get louder. We need to advocate for ourselves and each other. There needs to be this rise of sisterhood around Mm -hmm. wanting to protect each other. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, when you, you know, you hear, you first hear about somebody getting pregnant, you want to congratulate them and, you know, support them in all the ways that you can. But also once they have a baby, you know, it's about wanting to check in with that person and like, okay, I made mm-hmm. you, you know, I made you some lasagna, you can put it in the freezer for you. So yeah. that is very important. But also, being an advocate within the medical community is so important, mm-hmm. because the amount mm-hmm. of trauma that um, mothers are experiencing, and it's not first time mothers, because first time mothers don't really know. Yeah, what, what, oh, what? Yeah, second time mothers, third time mothers, fourth time mothers, the ones who know Mm -hmm. the system, the ones Mm -hmm. who know how they've been treated, the cells remember how they were checked. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and I think it's interesting because I know my first experience was pretty traumatic. I mean, and, and this is the thing I think that's also very challenging too, kind of that idea of creating more sisterhood, more uh, support amongst ourselves and amongst each other. I think from for my personal philosophy, I think we need to do that on multiple levels. Like I think we need to bring our men into that conversation a little bit more because one thing I notice, and I don't know um, how this may affect some of your uh, philosophies or practice, but um, it's, it's kind of a strange dichotomy because on one hand, I feel like we really need to bring our men into the conversation and let them know, like, this is what is happening beyond just the clinical, mm-hmm. um, you know, 
narrative of, you know, woman gets pregnant, woman's pregnant for a while, woman has baby, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think we need to help them to understand and become more sensitive through understanding, you know, this, this whole flux and flow that goes along with being in this very vulnerable yet powerful state of motherhood, because I mean, everything changes on so many levels, but the dichotomy I'm speaking of is also the fact that, um, while we need to bring our men in to this, you know, very sacred space, because it is a sacred space, um, we also need to kind of reclaim it because I think that, um, I know for myself, as I've said, like I, I've had two very, very different birthing experiences. My first birth experience was not something I would choose to repeat, even if there was a very large sum of money on the table. <laughs> but my second birth experience was wonderful. You know, I, I was uh, attended to by midwives. My husband was in the room with me. You know, we sang as my son was being born into the world. And that is, I think, the experience that hopefully most of us can have. I mean, not every birth is going to be easy like that one was, but it was such a stark contrast between what it is and what it should be that it, it's always stuck with me. And the biggest, I think, um, differences were with the established um, medical uh, industry, okay? Mm -hmm. um, as you said, there's there's all of these interventions. I call it, in my experience, I called it like having a McDonald's drive-through birth, you know? Mm -hmm. You get triage out of there as quick as possible. Yeah. In and out as quick as possible. And I was stuck in a ward room and, and all the women in the ward room, there was no sense of community of like, look what I made. It was more like, will you shut up? I'm trying to sleep, you know? And, and it, it was awful. Whereas my son, I was in and out of there in five hours. I was back home in my own bed and my midwife came to me and my midwife you know, asked me how I was doing. She's like, you know, are you nursing? Okay. How is your body feeling? How are your, how's your emotions, you know? And it was just night and day. And I think really because that midwifery um, practice is just so much more natural and in tune with trusting the woman's body, as well as the natural process of, you know, giving birth. And it was just, it was amazing. Like that, that if, you know, <laughs> if my second child wasn't such a second child, <laughs> <laughs> I might've considered having more just for the simple fact that I knew that there was an alternative. Yeah. So how does one advocate for themselves, Carmen? Like, what do you feel, you know, be it when you're, you know, about to give birth or you're planning yeah. to give birth, how do you, how do you advocate for yourself? You educate yourself you really do the research around who you're working with, what the interventions they're speaking of are um, asking as many questions as you could. Um, and sometimes, you know, we think about, okay, they know better, right? They, you know, they're in charge, so I'm going to trust them. But sometimes, you know, you are your own authority within your own body. So if something mm -hmm. feels off, you listen to that. If you feel that you're being rushed or not listened to, or there's no trauma-informed care, or there's lack of um, informed consent, this is when, mm -hmm. you know, when you start feeling like a vessel, when you start feeling like a host host i think a host is a good word like a third yeah. party entity <laughs> exactly and, you know this is when you say okay yeah. something feels off here mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
And that's, I think, really challenging, though, too, because I know in my first birthing experience, you know, as as you'd mentioned, like I kind of was looking at the nurses and doctors around me going, well, they've done this more times than I have. So I was easy to give over my authority because you just even with education, because I am a huge advocate for educating yourself. I and I took a lot of time. I watched countless birth videos. I read lots of books and I've been, there's a really good um documentary by uh, Ricky Lake. Um, mm-hmm. I'll have to look it up, but I think it was The Business of Being Born. And I watched that before giving birth to my daughter. And I kind of felt, and I wrote out my birth plan and I did all of these things, you know, because in my mind versus reality, you know, my mind was like, okay, I've got this down. I know what I need to do. I trust my body. I trust all the things that are happening. Mm-hmm. And then when it came to go time, I remember I walked into triage and I sat there and I had a big old shit eating grin on my face because I was very happy. I knew I was going to be giving birth, you know, eminently. I didn't know what that really meant, but mm. <laughs> I knew I knew it was game on. And when the nurse asked me why I was in there, I said, because I'm in labor and I was smiling and because I was happy and excited. And she says, no, you're not. And I'm like, wait, what? And again, my husband can attest to this. He was there. And I, and I said, yes, I am. And she goes, honey, if you were in labor, you would not be smiling. Which, while she wasn't wrong, that was like a huge deflating moment for me. And it, mm-hmm. it really laid the uh, cattle shoot out in front of me of this is the way it's going to go. Yeah. And, you know, I've never been one to kind of take things lying down. I've been kicked out of many things for arguing back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Moment, I was kind of afraid because, again, I didn't have, I'd never done it before. Even though I knew everything was where it was supposed to be, you know, there were certain things that I couldn't account for. Like if the baby had the cord wrapped around the neck or if I started to bleed too much, like my younger mm-hmm. sister, um, one of my younger sisters, she uh, hemorrhaged like significantly at the birth of one of her children. And, you know, so I I was aware enough to know that those things were, you know, a present and real possibility. And when I was the first time I was checked, see, here's the thing. My water had broke um, at about 5 a.m. the morning my daughter was to be born. And I remember distinctly because I got up and I felt weird and shifty and uncomfortable. <laughs> if you've ever mm-hmm. had those feelings, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Your body's going, um, something's trying to jar itself loose. <laughs> yep. yep. Went into the bathroom, sat down on the potty, and I was like, all of a sudden, there was a little more dripping than there should have been. But it, it wasn't all of it. And I knew that instinctively. I knew that though the, wa- the, membranes, the membranes had broken, the water hadn't completely come. And so I, I woke up my husband and he's like, are you sure? And I'm like, don't ask me that twice. <laughs> and, you know, fast forward several hours, because in my mind, I wanted to wait until the last possible minute to go to the hospital because I really didn't want to go to the hospital because I don't like hospitals. No offense mm-hmm. to all of our nurses. We love you. But I don't I don't know how you all work there. <laughs> that takes some kind of something. You got to be a special kind of person to be able to do that work. I will say that much. Long story short, when I was uh, finally being examined for my dilation, the first woman that came in uh, checked me and she's like, oh no, the membranes are still intact. And I'm like, they may be intact because my daughter's big round head has plugged the hole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh no, ma'am, that's not possible. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Fast forward, uh, you know, again, several hours later after pacing the halls back and forth, back and forth, back and forth that's what my body was telling me to do it wanted to move um i ended up 
back into uh, being checked again. And they strapped me up with belts, you know, stress tests, all this kind of stuff that really didn't need to happen. (laughs) (laughs) Only to discover that my labor had slowed down. And then panic ensues. Everybody's like, oh my God, you're going to have a dry birth. And I'm like, wait a minute, you just told me that the water didn't break. So is it dry or is it not? Well, we have to be sure, you know, and it's like all of these things just kept coming and coming and coming at me. And I was getting increasingly scared because, you know, language was being used that would imply that imminent danger was afoot. And if I didn't act in ways that were appropriate, my child would die or I could die, which would leave me as being negligent. Uh, It would leave me as being stupid and unprepared and all of these things. And so the experience at that point was, is listen to the experts because you're in trouble. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're in trouble. And they know know, better and they know how to get you out of trouble. Right. You know, and it's like in in retrospect, of course, looking back on it, you know, I recognize some of what was happening was supposed to happen. It was supposed to happen. Your labor will slow down at certain points in many births, you know, and it's it's very normal and natural because your body is doing what I like to call the um, the diesel <laughs> tractor thing. Yeah. <laughs> and then it starts up again. And you're like, oh my God, just make it stop. There we go again. Exactly. It's right. Yeah. Yeah. There's wisdom in, in, in the muscles of our bodies and, and in the soul of our, you know, our, our, our wombs, really. Mm-hmm. But we're so taught not to trust those things. And even amongst each other, do you realize, and, and I've had this conversation, and I'm sure you're going to know exactly where I'm going. So many women are so unaware of their bodies. They don't know what's happening, mm-hmm. you know, and it's because there's this, even now, even in 2022, there's this weird connotation of our sexuality being uh, somehow evil or bad our vaginas being words we don't say because that sounds like you said you should say excuse me mm-hmm. <laughs> vagina oh bless you <laughs> <laughs> even now you know there's still some there's still some of these remnants of uh fear around the m- magic that happens in the female body you know so like a lot of women are afraid they're like i've never seen my vagina i've heard people actually say that i've never seen it i don't know what yeah. it looks like i'm just hold it there. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, it, and it's interesting to me that even at this stage in our collective evolution, we're still very much in the dark about the majesty that lives, you know, in our bodies, you know, so what, what resources or what things would you tell someone who's listening to us have this discussion right now, what resources would you point them to, to help them educate themselves just on the normal and natural processes of labor and delivery? I would say, look up um, your local midwives, talk to your local midwives, ask the local midwives about books. And depending Mm -hmm. on those books, you know, you do your reading, you listen to a podcast, um, Mm -hmm. you talk to other moms and you ask other moms for their true and honest um, feedback and advice. Um, and I say it's about working with somebody who is trauma informed, because even when you're being checked, you know, if you're going to be checked roughly, that's going to create a trauma response inside the body. And if the body doesn't feel fully okay, it's not going to, um, 
produce the oxytocin, produce um, the, the right hormones that relaxes you and connects you to your body, right? So even mm -hmm. having the partner there and having, the, you know, your, your, your partner learning about these things too, because the partner, you know, has a very important role in labor and delivery. The partner is a source mm -hmm. of love. This is a source yeah. of ecstasy and bliss. And when they can hold you and, and protect yeah. you and look at you in the eye and say, I'm so proud of you for doing this. And let's breathe together. Let me hold space for this incredible body of yours. Mm -hmm. That's what needs to happen. There needs to be resources around partners and um, workshops for um, expected parent, expecting parents to come in and have that connection and learn what to do when you're going in that, you know, you, the heights of labor. There are some certain mm -hmm. maneuvers that the partner can do. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. I think and in, including our partners in that process is so vital to the family unit. It's vital to their sense of contribution. Because, I mean, I think one of the most amazing things I've ever been witness to is seeing, you know, just as a mother is born, so is a father at that same time, exactly. you know, and that connection, that little, because it's very, I think, I don't know, I can't speak for men because, of course, I don't, you know, have that experience. But it's so, they're so um, peripheral to mo much of what is happening you know, to their partners while they are, you know, gestating a, a child, you know, everything's very peripheral. He's just watching this thing occur. He's watching, you know, she's getting moody or why is she so goddamn horny? I can't keep up or wow. I didn't know you could eat that much. And, oh, I'm so sorry. You're sore. And, oh God, I, I hope you don't get sick again. Or all these, you know, changes that the woman goes through, the man is very much on the peripheral to until the day he holds his child or he himself delivers his child or he cuts that cord, you know, whatever the case may be, you know, that's when it, one of the things my own husband said to me, that's when it got very real for him. That's when he knew that, you know, mm. he was, he was included, which was interesting to me. I'm like, wow, I never really thought about his inclusivity because, mm. and that's why I said earlier, it's, I think it's so vital that we bring in uh, our men, our partners into these conversations because that role as a father, that role as a, a partner caregiver is, I think, so undervalued in, in this process that, you know, how can they how can they feel empowered if we don't say, you're my strength, you're mm -hmm. my rock that's going to keep me grounded through this process. And I know you may not understand everything or you may not know what to do and when to do it, but just your presence is everything, you know. And it's, I mean, I, I can say that for, for a fact that has been my experience because, you know, again, my family's like thousands of miles away. I'm here in Canada by myself. Well, I was, but now I have my kids, um, <laughs> those people, <laughs> as I often refer to them. Um, but uh, it's just, it's very important that our partners really feel their participation in the process is just as valued and important, you know, and, and yeah, like I can't, I can't even speak about that one enough on my own, <laughs> you know. Totally. So, and there's an actual term for it. Um, you know, yeah. when, when the baby is born, the mom is the gatekeeper and some moms will open up the gate and let the dad in. 
Uh-huh. And yeah. other times the mom feels like she needs to be doing everything, that she is the one. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. that, you know, the dad doesn't get brought into the circle of trust, so to speak. And I think he needs to be brought in, you know, and I get the idea of wanting to to have that moment to yourself. But if I may, I, I'd like to kind of talk about that, but on the other end of the spectrum. Okay. Uh, 2015, my dad passed away. And it was a very challenging period for me for numbers of reasons. And a lot of the stuff that happened as a result of his passing was pretty much left on my shoulders, which was okay because as you know, the saying goes, I've got broad shoulders. I can bear the, the weight of it. So over a course of several months, there was, the, you know, dealing with his things that he left behind in this world. And, you know, of course, he had other children besides myself and then trying to sort of collaborate with all these different people in order to, you know, uh, tie up loose ends, for lack of a better term. It wasn't until he passed away in September. It wasn't until March until my grieving process for myself mm-hmm. could, could start because I was so, you know, focused on all these other things. And I remember um, my husband and I went out and bought a white oak tree. It was his, my husband's suggestion, actually, because I was uh, wanting somewhere to put my dad's ashes. So we went and got this tree. And I went out in the backyard and I started digging a hole. Now, in March in Canada, that can be a bit challenging. <laughs> you know, the ground isn't exactly what I would call soft in March, and uh, at least the early part of March. And I was getting very frustrated and that frustration was building. And finally, it started to uh, leak out of my face in the form of tears. And my husband, seeing this, came over and tried to help me. And I said, no, I don't want your help. Because at that point for me, I felt very greedy in my own grief. I wanted it to myself because I hadn't been able to have any of that to myself up until that point. And um, he got angry. And then I got twice as upset because I felt like, how dare you get angry at me when I'm trying to, you know, have this moment? Like, who the fuck do you think you are? Mm -hmm. You know? And then we had a bit of an argument, which took all of the I don't know what, I can't say joy out of it because it wasn't a joyful occasion, but it just, the solemnity of it, it took everything away. And finally I I got so frustrated. I dropped my shovel. I sat down and I just bawled my eyes out for a little while. And then I went up to the house and I'm like, you can help me if you want to. (laughs) Cause I'm super mature like that. And he came down and he helped dig the hole. And the whole time I wouldn't look at him. I didn't speak to him. And I was really angry because I felt like his, interruption was an intrusion and mm-hmm. and I was just going to hold on to that anger because it was something that I got to have for myself misdirected as it was it was still mine and then later on I was having a conversation this was months down the road with someone else uh who's dear to me and I was telling them about what had happened and they were listening patiently before they're like well that was a dick move and I'm like what do you mean <laughs> referring to me as making the dick move and it dawned on me that my husband was feeling grief too, mm-hmm. even though dad, you know, cause we're very possessive about our parents just in the same way we're possessive about our children. And, but I realized that, you know what, he had every right to all of the grief that I was experiencing and needed to share it with me. And I think that sometimes we forget that in our moments of high heightened joy or heightened grief, whichever the case may be either end of the spectrum. And we need to bring our partners in. We have to do this because 
you will have those quiet moments. You're going to have them when you're all by yourself and you're all alone and you get to feel those feelings in their full color. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Don't that one later too. But there are certain scenarios where even if we want to do something by ourselves, we have to create the inclusive inclusivity of bringing our partners or, um, you know, the people that have a long term interest in our lives and our children's lives into that, that circle of trust, because if provided, of course, everything is safe and, and there's no uh, abuse happening, that's going to set a narrative between yourself, your child and your partner going forward that says either I want you or I don't want you, mm-hmm. you know? So, Yeah. <laughs> things you learn unit it's about the yeah. unit and it's about you mm-hmm. know we are in this together and it's not just the mom the, is the one who takes care of these things or the dad's the one who takes care of these things it really is about collaborating and holding mm-hmm. each other up and leaning on each other mm-hmm. so true it's so true so how would you suggest because i know i've talked to lots of people I, you know, in my work, I, I get to talk to people from all walks of life. I know it's the same for you. Um, you know, I, I hear a lot of people feeling, you know, this sense of like, well, I can't ask for that. You know, my partner's not going to get it. I can't ask you know, them to him or her to be in the room. I don't know how to bring them in. How do you, what languaging or, or in what ways can you start that conversation with somebody that, you know, you're already feeling a little like, nervous and unsure of even bringing the topic up, let alone, you know, saying I need, you know, underline the need word (laughs) from you, you know, do you have tools that you can kind of talk about? Well, it really is about getting curious about how long has that pattern been going on for? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, if you grew up taking care of yourself, being hyper independent, um, it's going to be really hard asking for help. It's going to be really Mm -hmm. hard. Um, You know, sometimes it's like accepting defeat almost or the shame of needing to ask for help because you can't do it by yourself. So there's, you know, there can be lots of that going on depending on the belief systems and the experiences of the past. So it really is about getting curious about what you're making it mean. So it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, if there's resistance around asking for help or wanting to do it by yourself, it's like, okay, what, what has your experience been around help? Um, Mm -hmm. Have people been really helpful or have they just pretended to be helpful and you don't really get much out of it? Right. Mm -hmm. That can be a factor as well. And it's also about what you make it mean. I'm really, you know, getting, taking a really good look at yourself in the mirror and saying, okay, Mm -hmm who am I if I'm asking for help? If my whole life up to now, I've kind of done things my on my own and I've been told that I need to do things on my own so I can be strong or so I can be independent or so I can get things done, right? Or just so I can be safe. You know, yes. that's, that was my experience. Was, wasn't so much, I mean, that was definitely part of the statement of like, you need to take care of yourself. And, and there was a lot of, Um, statements growing up that I heard, you can't trust anybody. You can't trust anybody. You know, that was a a said statement in my, my growing up home. And, you know, so with that statement that automatically sets this, um, this, I guess, story, I don't know, but belief structure for me that, you know, nobody's going to be there. Nobody's going to help you. So 
if you do ask, go ahead and brace yourself because you're probably going to be dealing with it on your own anyway. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a lot of that in the world where we are told, you know, simultaneously, A, do things on your own, be productive, be independent, be strong, don't need a man, don't need a parent, don't need a da, 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 on and on and on. But also, you can't trust nobody. People mm-hmm. are terrible. Everybody sucks. Everybody's out for themselves, you know. So there's this weird schism that, uh, you know, develops in our thinking that says, don't trust anybody, be independent, you know, but at the same time, you're vulnerable. So, I mean, it's it just leads people into a deep, dark confusion. And that's, it's kind of like when you ask those questions, you know, what am I asking for? Why am I asking for it? You know, I always... Yeah, I always had a, a personal struggle with that, <laughs> but I, what I have learned is, is that um, once we have taken that time to do the, the critical thinking, we still have to move over the barrier of expectation, you know, yeah. of what we expect people are going to do or not do. Yeah. And being vulnerable and, and even, you know, directing people sometimes of like, okay, this is what I need. And being quite yeah. specific around it rather yeah. than just, I need assistance or I need help. It's more like, right. okay, can you do this for me? Right. Can you take right. on the I mental don't... load of grocery shopping and meal planning? Yeah. A lot of people don't feel like they can, though. You know, a lot of people have been given either feedback from their partners that says I'm too busy or I don't want to or I can't be trusted with that because you know I'm not capable smart enough whatever fill in your uh you know what that's called that Hmm. is called weaponizing competence Ooh, I like that describe that for us a little bit weaponizing competence is exactly what you just said pretending to be Mm -hmm. incompetent pretending not to be able to do it because you know what she's gonna do it she's gonna pick up the slack because she can't right she's got broad shoulders she knows how to do it she's already been spinning you know all these plates what's one more yeah so then because this is something that comes up i hear a lot i don't want to have to ask he should just know or they should just know i've already asked 175 times why do i have to ask again and Mm -hmm. this is the thing so that puts a, a relationship into a stalemate because i think the problem comes down to trust I think that's really number one because you can love somebody, you can love them deep and still not trust them. You know, you can, and they can love you right back and, you know, be untrustworthy, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is very antithetical to everything that love is supposed to mean between people. But the fact remains sometimes you've asked for the thing, you've been very direct about the thing. You've said, you know, I need you to do this because this is going to result in this. And yeah. then we'll all be happier. And so, you know, what do you do, you know, as, as a, as a therapist, I'm sure you run into this frequently yeah. enough. Yeah. What do you tell that person that's at that, at that stage where they've asked, they've done all the quote, end quote, right things, and they're mm-hmm. still not getting anywhere. I ask them, do you feel like a single mom? Yeah. And they'll because tell you, I yes. have met many single moms within marriages. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And then from there, we start talking mm -hmm. about what their unmet needs are within their relationship. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I would never really, you know, give advice or give direction, but it's really about just discovering 
the lack of support and really seeing it very clearly, you know, that this is how your life is right now. And, Mm -hmm. you know, let's get you into couples counseling. Let's get Mm -hmm. you, you know, get the both of you talking about the the stalemate that you're at. Yeah, that one's a tough one. That was such a hard space to be in because it's kind of like, on one hand, you want to throw in the towel and just say, I'm done. And on the other Mm -hmm. end, you, you feel you know, all of the things that got you into the relationship to begin with, you know, are, are keeping you sort of in this weird landlock of like, I want in and I can't get out, but I want, I don't know what I want to do. Yeah. And this <laughs> so is why it, couples it, counseling can be so helpful because, you know, you don't have to be in the red before you go into couples counseling. You can, you know, start okay. noticing some things that are just not working, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, then you bring mm-hmm. them in and you work on them together because you know the weaponized incompetence maybe that's just what you saw dad do yeah right yeah. sometimes it's it's not really you know malicious or conscious sometimes it's just yeah. this is what i've been taught to do you know men are yeah. incapable of domestic chores or household chores or yeah. Um, cooking and all of that you know I'm going to give a little bit of an mm-hmm. example my partner didn't know how to cook when we first oh, wow. together. he didn't know uh-huh. how to cook now he does 80% of the cooking he discovered parts of himself that you, you know I actually really like creating new recipes uh-huh. That's able cool. to tap into that creative energy through cooking and had right. I just t- taken over and not really advocated for you know an, uh-huh. like an equal share or even you know taking the load of cooking off of my hands yeah he wouldn't have discovered that about himself it, it wasn't easy mm-hmm. yeah yeah I was going to say, I think that comes down to negotiation and that can be very challenging for people because I think our, our society really sets us up with some falsehoods, you know, when it comes to marriage and family, like we walk into, you know, life having, you know, come off of a season of fresh, you know, fresh off of a season of yes to the dress. And we are no to be, you know, husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, friends and lovers, exactly. you know, because you have to wear all of those hats, but there's all this emphasis put on the date and not everything that comes after. And it's really frustrating because like, I mean, my husband and I've been married, we're pushing into our 21st year now. We've had our highs and we've had our very, very lows and then a whole bunch of dead air in between, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And like 20 years is is a lifetime for some and just a drop in the bucket for others. But what I can say is, is that, you know, the only thing that has really um, gotten us through our, our relationship and our marriage and has kept us resilient, even in spite of some very difficult times, has been communication uh, or none. Because, you know, it's like you can fall out of love with somebody if you're not to that person. You can fall out of interest. You can fall out of play. You can fall out of all these different things. If there is no, you know, exchange of of thought, you know, of emotion and and no words to describe those things. If you're not having those sit down conversations or walking conversations or, you know, lovemaking conversations, then everything else is going to, you know, die. It's just Mm -hmm. going to. Mm -hmm. And, that comes down to sometimes negotiating, like, you know, what you were talking about with weaponizing competency, you know, sometimes what happens to people is weaponizing um, 
or, or creating currency out of uh, one's workload. And I, I don't know if there's <laughs> a professional uh, title for that, but, you know, sometimes in some relationships, well, I, you know, I do the majority of the breadwinning, so I get to make the decisions and I shouldn't have to go wash the dishes because I was out working all day. I shouldn't have to play with the kids because I was out working all day. And that can happen on literally either side of the fence. Yeah. Traditionally, it's been women who would receive the brunt of that. Um, but as our world is changing and evolving and our, uh, you know, gender roles are starting to widen some, to some extent and families are looking more and more um, diverse, I think, you know, this, this concept of um, one partner being, you know, saddled with one portion of the family um, workload you know, the distribution has got to change and, and our mentality about the distribution of responsibility has also got to change, but we have to talk about it with each other, mm-hmm. you know, because I've seen couples and you've, you may have too, where the husband is the stay at home parent, you know, mm-hmm. primary caregiver where the wife may be, um, you know, the, the breadwinner or, you know, both husbands will be working and the children will be taken care of by other people or both wives are working. And, you know, I mean, it can sort of span any, you know, breadth and width of uh, description, but I think it's that communication factor and how we're negotiating that uh, distribution of responsibility that really comes down to whether or not we feel uh, our needs are being met and we feel uh, adequately appreciated and valued in the things that we are doing. Because that comes up an awful lot. You know, I hear people all the time, you know, if I wasn't here, Nobody would notice, <laughs> except for the mm-hmm. fact that the dishes would pile up, the laundry would get bigger or whatever the case may be. You know, so I think that also factors into, you know, the very beginning of how we define our relationships. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of good points. Profound. So much to take in. Yeah. Yeah. That's why we have to be careful, you and I. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Those, those conversations can just get bigger and broader. So yeah. um, now when it comes down to parenting, so one of the things that um, we, we started this conversation off with was sort of the uh, state of mental health, the maternal state of mental health. Mm-hmm. So what are some things that moms, new moms uh, or second, third, fourth, mm-hmm. you know, plus mom, <laughs> uh, what are some things that they can do that don't doesn't require anybody else's um, what's the word I'm looking for uh, participation or cooperation? What are things moms can do to take care of their mental health? You know, mm-hmm. um, breathing, doing your Ooh. mindful breathing. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes what happens is that you know when you have this baby, you have this child, your own infant is going to get triggered mm-hmm. your own the, the experience of your own infancy is going to show up and it really is yeah. about making sure that you're breathing and you're you know you're present to the grief or present mm-hmm. to the joy or present to oh my gosh i don't know if i'm doing this right i think the tool mm-hmm. here is to use grace and compassion for yourself knowing that you're doing the best you can with what you have right now. And one little piece of advice is that 
we give about, you know, the baby takes about 80% of our cellular energy when we're giving birth. So Mm -hmm. when you're actually, you know, your postpartum body, your postpartum body needs as many nutrients as possible to fill you back up. So it really is about making sure you're getting the right nutrition, you're you're getting supplements in, inside of your body so you can function and keep giving because you're you know being a mom is stepping into that giving role and how can you give with 20 percent left inside of your body so really making sure that you're taking in you're filling yourself up with all of Mm -hmm. the things that you Mm -hmm. need to function yeah, I've heard that it takes the the postpartum body as many as or can take as many as two years, even with vaginal birth, um, probably more with um, uh, cesarean or other uh, birth interventions, but as, as many as two years to recuperate fully, yes. you know, from giving birth. Like, can you imagine? Like, nobody talks about that. Nobody's like, hey, give yourself a break. You do not have to lose 15, mm-hmm. 20, 30 pounds in three weeks to be a valid human being. You can have all of that squishy goodness and still be, you know, hot as hell. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, you know, you are a good mom just because you are a mom. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you said that because that's one of those things are so, it seems like there's so many goddamn qualifiers for. And I remember I had conversation one time with a friend years ago who was co-sleeping for me co-sleeping wasn't an option because I barely sleep as it is and anytime that baby would fart I'd be like wide awake going oh my god is it okay you know (laughs) it wasn't an option for me and I remember having this conversation and it was so bizarre because again sort of finding ourselves in this weird stalemate because for her she felt I was judging her for co-sleeping with her uh her child and the child was, I think, almost two to three years old and they were still co-sleeping. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm happy for you because if you can do that, great. If that works for your family, that's fine. And I felt very judged because I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, my babies were in their own bedrooms by the time they were, uh, the, my oldest was, I think she was eight weeks, you know, mind you, I was in there, you know, feeding and I should have just stayed in there really. Um <laughs> But <laughs> looking back on it, I don't know that if I, w- I would have gotten more or less sleep, but it just, it felt like the right thing to do for us. Mm-hmm. And then my youngest, same th- kind of thing. I think he was like, uh, like maybe 10 weeks or something. Cause he was a pretty intense feeder, but that's another story for another day. But it was mm-hmm. weird because I felt a lot of judgment and she felt judgment. And I'm like, but I'm not judging you. She's like, well, I felt like you were. And I'm like, how? Mm-hmm. And this is a, a conversation people we have to talk about these things and just without being harmful just say I feel this way it doesn't make it you know the person's intention but you have to acknowledge that you feel some kind of way because if you don't you're going to get angry you're going to get resentful and just like what Carmen was saying you're going to that's going to come out in other ways in your life you're going to be pissed off at your kid you'll be pissed off at your your mate you'll be pissed off at the world at large and that doesn't feel good either because ultimately you'll be pissed off at yourself, <laughs> you know, but yeah, it, it's, it's interesting how that occurred. So uh, yeah, breathing, you know, mm-hmm. talking and advocating for yourself. And one of the things I think I found the most helpful was just being honest yeah, and not putting on the fake smile of I'm fine. 
because <laughs> there was so many times I was so not okay, like yeah. so not okay. But I didn't want to inconvenience anybody with the truth of the depth of my feeling. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. completely. There's a sense of um, I need to pretend to be okay to not make other people uncomfortable because they won't know how to be there for me. Absolutely fantastic conversation with you, Carmen. And I'm so appreciative that you have come on and we've had all of these topics to discuss today. I mean, it's just been like, I can't wait to have you back. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. And I'm just really happy that these conversations are showing up and popping up. And I just hope that it resonates um, with some folks. And so they can, you know, acknowledge who they are and acknowledge that, you know, I am a good parent. I can, I just need to communicate and be honest and be authentic with who I am and what my needs are. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's so important. And I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, those that have listened today are able to take uh, something good from this conversation. And how, how do people get a hold of you, Carmen? Um, you can reach me at CarmenKatan.com. All of my information is on there. I am also on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Um, all my socials are on my website as well. Everything is there. Check me out if you want to uh, further the conversation or do some work. I would be happy to talk to you. That's awesome. So that's CarmenKatan.com. That's C-A-R-M-E-N-K-A-T-T-A-N.com. So you can reach Carmen there for psychotherapy or any additional work that you might like to do to help um, you process through some experiences you've had or to create a new narrative for going forward in your life. And I fully intend to have you back in again, Carmen. There's just so many more topics that I think that you can bring some light to (laughs) and and, uh, things that we can discuss uh, in the future. So again, I say thank you so, so much and I'll be seeing you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. You too. Hey, Mystics. I hope you've been enjoying this episode. If you'd like to download it, listen to past episodes, or become a subscriber, visit www.northstarmystic.com. Now back to the episode.